Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another United States Studies Center webinar. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science here at the Study Center, the Center's Chief Executive Officer. And as we begin every webinar here, we acknowledge the Gadigal people on whose traditional lands the United States Study Center and the University of Sydney stands. And the Gadigal, of course, form part of the Eora Nation. And we pay our respects to elders past, the present, and emerging. 2020 has seen, uh, it's been a remarkable year, suffice to say already, and it's only August. What that brought about at the United States Study Center was a fundamental reappraisal of our research strategy for the year. And we're focused now on really two questions and only two questions, and, and they are as follows. What is the trajectory of American politics, power, and prestige? And what are the implications for Australia? And that's the frame for this conversation we're about to have with Tom Friedman from the New York Times, who has generously given us an hour of his time. Again, like so many of our Washington DC uh, uh, participants of late, it's, it's in the evening there. Uh, Tom's at home and giving up an hour of his evening uh, to talk with us, and we're enormously grateful. And of course, um, you know, just by way of brief introduction for Tom, um, uh, recipient of three Pulitzer Prizes, author of seven best-selling books from Beirut to Jerusalem, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, Longitudes and Attitudes, The World is Flat, Hot, Flat and Crowded, That Used to Be Us, and Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist Guide to Thriving in the Age of Acceleration, which was updated and released in 2017. And of course, um, if you're on this call, you probably know that Tom writes regularly for the New York Times. He's done so on foreign policy, in particular, sort of a must-read column that has appeared since 1995. But of course, as is in the nature of writing about US foreign policy, obviously taking in US domestic politics, um, biodiversity, energy, you name it. Um, all of that filters into Tom's insights that appear regularly in that must-read column. And, and indeed, before that, Tom's actually been with the Times since, since 1981, and he joins us from Washington. And in conversation for the bulk of today uh, is, um, is our non-resident fellow and uh, networker extraordinaire who's brought Tom uh, to us today, and that's, of course, Bruce Wolpe, who uh, uh, joins us from his home, uh, only a few suburbs away from the university. Uh, Bruce, of course, a veteran of uh, both politics in Australia and the US, which just makes him extraordinarily valuable to the work we do here at the center. Uh, Bruce worked with Democrats in Congress uh, during the Obama administration, and he uh, served on the staff of Prime Minister Julia Gillard here in Australia, where importantly, immediately after Prime Minister Gillard left office, he served as, as Chief of Staff uh, for, for Prime Minister Gillard after office. Bruce and Tom, over to you two gentlemen for the bulk of today. I'll be back to run some Q&A a little bit later on, but thank you both for giving us this hour of your time. Thank you. Uh, and th thank you, Tom. This is just a very special privilege and honor for us. And uh, the, the good news is you don't have wear and tear on travel to Australia, but the bad news is there are thousands of golf courses with your name on it, uh, which unfortunately you're not gonna be able to see today. So I'm sorry about that, but welcome back to Australia. The last time you were here was the Sydney Writers Festival in 2017 for your right. book. Um, thank you for being late and, uh, and thank you for being on time and late whenever you are. <laughs> it's great for you to be here. Thank you. Pleasure. Great to be with you. Thank you. And, and with the center. It's a, it's a real treat for me. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, thank you. Um, Tom, we're going to get to your column that came out just a few minutes ago. Will 2020's election be the end of our democracy uh, shortly? But I, I think let's start with something even a little bit bigger than that, and that's Mother Nature that you uh, talk about all the time. It, it, from, you know, we were in touch in January when Australia was facing the bushfire crisis, and this has been the year from hell. Bushfires here, and then COVID, the pandemic around the world. And uh, it's just been a horror year. So in January, we were in touch. I sent you photos uh, of what you could not see from Balmain, which was the Sydney Harbor Bridge and the Opera House because of the smoke that was uh, uh, choking Sydney and choking Australia. And now we're reeling from the pandemic. And you know, as you've written about, let's start with mother, you know, about mother nature, you say you've written recently, for the first time in the life of our generation of human species, mother nature has the whole world in her hands. The entire planet is collectively facing the same challenges from the same coronavirus at the same time. 
and then you go on. That's been the starting point of all my analyses. I try to ground all my thoughts on how to deal with this pandemic and the logic of mother nature and the laws of natural systems. But it seems to me our politics uh, and policies are not aligned with mother nature at all. I mean, in America, how to deal with the virus has been based on Trump denialism and wearing a mask is weak. And, um, and uh, on the Bush fires, while they were raging here in Australia, there was sort of a syllogism that went on in the heads of Australians around across the country. Global warming, climate change, drought, bushfires, fix it. But our political systems are not up to meeting either challenge. And so my, my first question to you is, why is this so hard? You know, and what can we do? Well, Bruce, uh, again, thanks to you and, and Simon and, and the Center for having me. It's a real treat. Um, uh, we're, we're old and, and uh, cherished friends. And uh, I'm sorry I can't be there in Australia with you in person. Uh, so many <laughs> friends and peers there, you know. Um, so let me, you know, start by um, just for our audience framing for you how I think about the pandemic and how I have um, really framed all my analyses because uh, that'll explain you know, a, lot of my, a lot of my views. I mean, I always begin by, by telling people that my daughter, Natalie, is the executive producer of Weekend, All Things Considered, on national public radio in America. And uh, I'm very proud of my daughter, so I never miss a show. And um, on Easter Sunday, they did a roundup of pastor's sermons from around America um, uh, on Easter Sunday, and they're all about the pandemic. And my favorite was Pastor uh, Michael Curry from the Nat National Cathedral, who ended his Easter sermon by, by singing a little song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And now just substitute she for he, and you'll understand where we are. For the first time, as you, you know, quoted me saying, Bruce, Mother Nature, she got the whole world in her hands. For the first time, all of us, all of her plants and animals, all of her human species are facing simultaneously everywhere in the world the same, to use an American baseball term, fastball from Mother Nature. Now, Mother Nature's fastballs are the things she throws at her plants and animals to sort out who is the fittest, who shall get their DNA into the next generation. And when she throws these fastballs at us, she actually does not reward the strongest, no. She doesn't reward the smartest, no, no. She actually only rewards, as Darwin taught us, she only rewards the most adaptive. Who can adapt to my fastball the best? And in particular, she only rewards those who have the following three adaptation strategies. She asks you three questions. The first question she asks is, are you humble? Are you humble? Do you respect my virus? Do you respect my fastball? Because if you don't, it will hurt you or someone you love. Second, she asks, are you coordinated in your response? Because I, Mother Nature, evolved my, my virus over millennia to find any crack in your individual immune system or your communal immune system. So are you coordinated? And thirdly, she asks, have you built your adaptation strategy on chemistry, biology, and physics? Because that's all I am says Mother Nature. I'm just chemistry, biology, and physics. I'm going to do whatever they dictate. And you know, you can't come to me and say, Mother Nature, but we're having a bad recession. Could you take a little time off? No, she's going to do whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate. And she always bats last. And she always bats a thousand. And she's never lost a duel with any of her species in 4.8 billion years. If you have built your adaptation strategy on chemistry, biology, and physics, you're gonna be okay. If you've built your adaptation strategy on politics, ideology, and an election calendar, she will hurt you or someone you love. Now, if you look around the world, you'll see three broad adaptation strategies. The first is China's. So China's, China basically took 
a state surveillance system perfected for domestic control and applied it to controlling the coronavirus. Um, uh, and they did it with ruthless Chinese efficiency, but, but very well, on the assumption that if they could get the numbers down low enough, they could actually get their economy back going um, and through tra uh, testing, tracing, and tracking, control the virus, get the economy up, excuse me, and be able to wait for a vaccine. That was China's way of a sustainable strategy, and this is what everybody needs, for saving the maximum amount of lives and the maximum amount of livelihoods at the same time. That's what we're all looking for. How do we save the maximum lives but the maximum jobs? Because if you just save lives and say, to heck with the economy, you are going to create deaths of despair over the long term that will dwarf the number of people who will die from coronavirus. And if you just say, well, let's just focus on the economy, you will condemn so many innocent people to death. So everybody's looking for the sweet spot, and that was the Chinese model. And it had many democratic variants. Australia was one, South Korea was another, New Zealand was another, Germany another, of, of, of varying degrees of, of success. Second model was Sweden. Sweden said basically, you know what, we're actually going to um, uh, let our K through ninth grade kids go to school. We're going to close high school and universities. We're going to let people uh, work if they want. If they social distance, please wear a mask. We're going to try to protect our most vulnerable, our elderly. But we're actually going to let our healthy population contract the, the coronavirus and, um, uh, and build herd immunity to it because this is a disease that affects a lot of people a little and it affects a few people a lot. And though it does come in regular decaf and double macchiato, we will assume that, um, uh, that most people will get the decaf version. A lot of controversy about Sweden. I was one of the people who wrote about it early and often, and I got a lot of pushback on it. And because and everyone said, well, they had more deaths than their neighbors and all these things. I said, wait a minute, this is a long-term plan. You can't judge it by this snapshot. Turns out in the long-term Sweden, um, uh, their, their approach, which was to develop herd immunity until there's a vaccine, um, may in the long run, I'm still not ready to pronounce on anything, but it, it's shown a lot of promise. The third approach to managing lives and livelihood is the American approach, which is what the hell, let's lock down haphazardly, let's reopen haphazardly, um, I don't feel like wearing a mask, I'll do what I want, don't tell me what to do, American individualism run riot. Um, we'll talk like we're going to be China. We'll act actually like we're going to be Sweden. We'll prepare for neither and we'll claim to be superior to both. That basically is the American strategy. It's, um, and it leaves us really with leadership issues as to how to rise to the, to what, to the dictates of mother nature and how we come through. Um, I want to turn, if I may, to the, to the U.S. and talk about this year and what's going to unfold. And I really want to begin first with local because you told some stories so compellingly in your book. Thank you for being late when you talk about growing up in Minneapolis. Now, Minneapolis, before George Floyd, was known to Australia because a woman, uh, Justine Diamond, was uh, killed by a police officer when she went down from her apartment to uh, look at what she thought was, you know, try and warn against a sexual assault. And that po a policeman was um, ultimately faced justice and uh, was sent, convicted of murder, sent to jail. I, I always wonder if, if the policeman was, um, was white and she was black, whether there would have been a trial in Minneapolis. But that showed a real problem in the Minneapolis Police Department. But, and everyone said after this Justine Diamond killing, well, they'll fix it. They didn't fix it because George Floyd got killed by the police. And then, and everything has exploded over the summer. And, but, but it's really a story going back to your growing up and what you saw of, a, of a, a community that's been through immigration and integration and civic pride and managing the stresses of American life. And I'm just wondering, if, are there some lessons from Minneapolis before we turn to the larger picture of what's occurring this year in the campaign? So Bruce, it's a very good question because Minneapolis is a microcosm of uh, something that um, your American study center will be dealing with, um, you know, for the rest of your days, basically. Um, and it's a story of a country going from a white majority country to a minority majority country. 
and Minneapolis is really in the sweet spot. So I was born two miles away from where George Floyd was killed. He was killed on the south side of the city. I was born on the north side of the city. And um, in my last book, I actually talked about the fact that Minnesota is famed for its Minnesota nice, you know, Minnesota nice, that's what we're known for. But uh, actually quoted my friend Sandra Samuels, who's a prominent African-American community leader there as saying in the book, you know, Minnesota nice covered for a lot of racism. Okay. And so um, now the good news about Minneapolis is that um, people were aware of it. There were a lot of people wanted to get caught trying to fix the problem. Um, but uh, the problem I think proved to be deeper, more endemic than um, you know, the, even the, the good people trying to fix it realized and George Floyd's killing um, really um, you know, highlighted uh, how much work they have to do. But let's talk about Minnesota as a microcosm. Um, now let's get out of Minneapolis, let's talk about Minnesota in general, because it's something I think Australians would be interested in is relevant to you. So um, I was uh, um, uh, born in 1953 um, in the north side of the city, which at the time was, at the time was uh, almost entirely a ghetto of African-Americans and Jews, not because we were integrated there, but because we were isolated there, basically. Uh, after the war, the Jews were able to break out. Um, and uh, the entire, virtually the entire Jewish community of Minneapolis actually moved to one little suburb called St. Louis Park, which is where I grew up. And I grew up in a remarkable little, it was a town that was basically 80% white, Protestant, uh, Catholic, Scandinavian, and 20% Jewish. You know, if Israel and Sweden had a baby, it would have been St. Louis Park. Okay? <laughs> and, um, uh, and I grew up and went to high school and Hebrew school and, and in the same place and basically same time with the Cone brothers, um, the filmmakers, Al Franken, the senator, Norm Ornstein, the political scientist, Michael Sandel, the political theorist, uh, Nate Berkus, the designer, uh, uh, Sharon Isbin, the guitarist, um, uh, uh, um, uh, Peggy Ornstein, the, the writer. It was a, it was a really a hotbed of, uh, of creativity. Very, very interesting. Um, so um, my dad had a sister, um, and uh, this will get to the microcosm point. Uh, and she and her husband in um, uh, 1949, after the war, they actually moved from Minneapolis to a little town in central Minnesota called Wilmer, Minnesota. They moved there in 1949. They started a little steel company. And at that time, Wilmer was a town of about 20,000 people. It was 99.999% white, Protestant, German, and Scandinavian, and three Jewish families, one of whom was my uncle. And so I spent 50 years visiting Wilmer, Minnesota uh, in summers to see my aunt and uncle. And um, I never forgot that around 1975, it was around then, I can't say the, specify the date, but just because I don't remember, my aunt came down for a family event from Wilmer and she pulled me aside and she told me that she had been in the grocery store that weekend. And she said, Tom, I heard someone speaking Spanish, <laughs> Spanish. She heard someone speaking Spanish and she never forgot it and neither did I. It was her first encounter with the other, okay? So my aunt and uncle passed away about 10 years ago and um, uh, lo and behold, a year and a half ago, I get a visit in my office from a woman named Dana Mortensen, runs an education NGO in Minnesota. And she comes to, she wants to see me, talk about education. Um, and she happens to mention in passing, she says, I work in Wilmer, of our NGO. I said, you work in Wilmer? I had an aunt and uncle that lived there, but I hadn't been there for 10 years. I said, I'm gonna make you a deal. This is how I work. I'm gonna give you a free lecture and you're gonna set up a day for me in Wilmer, Minnesota. So she made a deal, she would do that. She got Hamza Warfa, who is sort of the leading Somali in this Minnesota government, state government, had a deputy head of workforce development to come with us. And I got my friend, Giddy Greenstein, who is an Israeli expert on small towns in Israel. And the four of us went off to Wilmer together. So this was like the um, punchline to a joke. So a Somali and Israeli, you know, two Minnesotans go off to Wilmer, a bar in Wilmer. And our first stop is Wilmer High School. Um, and the principal meets us. 
And he takes us into the lobby and he points to a world map hanging over the lobby. And he explains to us that at the beginning of every school year, the rising senior class takes a ladder and they climb up to that map and they put pins in every single country represented by Wilmer's senior class. Because Wilmer, Minnesota today is roughly 50% Somali and Latino. A town that in 1975, my aunt was freaked out by someone speaking Spanish today basically is roughly a quarter African Somali Muslims and um, uh, Latinos and then all these Minnesotans. And that is a microcosm of what's happened in Minnesota. Now, um, and that gives you a little bit of the background on the, that that place changed demographically a real lot, really fast. Now, Wilmer actually is doing amazingly well, amazingly well. Um, and what I went there to write about is to understand why. Because there's a town down the road called St. Cloud that's doing amazingly poorly. In fact, the Somalis call it White Cloud because there's so much endemic racism there. So I spent my time in Wilmer, and here's what I learned. Why are they, why are they doing what, what? What are the communities in Minnesota who are making this transition, what do they have in common? Well, the first thing they have in common is that something called necessity. It turns out that necessity, Bruce, it isn't just the mother of invention, it's the mother of inclusion. Because all these small towns are desperate for labor. And when you are desperate for workers, you don't care what color somebody is, what religion they are, who they sleep with, you only care about their soft skills. Will they wake up, sit up, dress up, clean up, learn up, work up, and shut up? And if they will, oh boy, you have a job in Wilmer, Minnesota today, okay? Um, by the way, as a, uh, in, the, in the Genio Turkey factory, or as an ag scientist, they're desperate for labor, all of these towns. And that's how the Somalis got there in the first place. So that broke through the kind of natural resistance to such a foreign community, Somalis in West Central Minnesota. Um, the second thing all these towns have in common though, are leaders without authority. Leaders without authority are the most important leaders of all. Because um, leaders without authority are like the fire chief. You know, the first Ramadan, the Somalis had nowhere to pray. You know, there's no mosque in Wilmer. And they asked the fire chief if they could use the fire station. He said, yes. A lot of people in Wilmer didn't like that. He said, too bad. These are our new neighbors. Leaders without authority, really, really important. Third thing Wilmer had is that the leaders without authority all got together and created what I call a complex adaptive coalition. So the business community partnered with the education community, partnered with the philanthropic community, partnered with the civil um, society community, partnered with the local government, they created a coalition to manage this transition. So I'll give you an example. Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is the biggest healthcare company in Minnesota, or one of the two big ones, um, came to Wilmer and they invited different townspeople to host dinners. They, they did about a dozen of them. You could raise your hand and host a dinner. Somali woman did it, her host, the fire chief did it, his house. Anyone could sign up to go to anybody's house for dinner. And they talked about what the community needed. And then each dinner, they had a, then a large full community meeting and they voted on from each dinner what ideas that they wanted for their community. So one group wanted a, uh, a daycare center where elderly and, and kindergartners would be together. Uh, with Somalis wanted a, a program for teaching Somali mothers to identify autism. And then Blue Cross Blue Shield, two years in a row, spent almost a quarter of a million dollars funding each of these programs. I asked the people at Blue Cross Blue Shield, why did you do that? They said, it's very simple, Tom. Healthy communities have healthy people. So that is the story of Wilmer. You don't read about the story of Wilmer. You, you naturally and understandably read about something like George Floyd, uh, obviously. But it's a complex reality, and it's the story in microcosm of a country going from white majority to minority majority. Exactly. And that is the question of 
so where are we going in this election? I mean, you've, you've written, uh, because it's directly relevant about the future of, of what America is going to be. I mean, you've said, you wrote, we're edging towards a cultural civil war, although this time we're not so lucky. Abraham Lincoln is not the president. I'd say our motto used to be out of many, one, but now it's sort, sort of out of many, none, and I fear it could become out of many, me. And so what's, that, talk a little bit about what's at stake here and your column out just within the hour, will 2020's election be the end of our democracy and how this is unfolding? So I think we're at a, um, we're just at a really vital turning point in American history. Um, it is possible um, that we will, um, not have a legitimate uh, free and fair election that can produce a peaceful transition in power. I never thought I would utter that sentence, let alone write it this evening in the New York Times, but it is a live possibility. It's a live possibility for two reasons. Um, it starts with the pandemic. And because of the pandemic, we cannot get enough poll workers to man polling stations. Um, and because our poll workers are volunteers and they're usually elderly people who are retired. And who is the most vulnerable to coronavirus? It's people 60 and above. It's like every imaginable poll worker. So this is causing every locality to possibly shrink the number of polling stations. Then on top of that, you have the fear, smaller polling stations mean longer lines. And then you're taking your life in your own hand, maybe to vote. Well, the alternative to that is mail-in voting. And over there, we have a president who is dishonestly, bogusly, calling mail-in voting fraudulent unless it's in a state he likes like Florida. And so you could have a situation where half the country who votes for Joe Biden feels their votes weren't counted sufficiently. And the other half of the country is made to believe those votes for Joe Biden were all fraudulent. This isn't, this isn't like Gore v. Bush, you know, some little electoral Chad thing that the Supreme Court can sort out. This is a fundamental threat. We are on the doorstep of possibly the end of our electoral democracy, at least in this election, for the first time in our 244 year history. And if you don't think that's not a possibility, you are not paying attention. Is it your sense that the American people want to turn the page on Trump on, you know, on the whole? I mean, he has a face, you know, 40%, whatever, but that the country really wants to move on into what you were talking about in Minnesota and, and a, a, just a better, more secure future? I, I think that at least half the country feels that way. Um, but uh, he still has a lot of support, Bruce. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it would be, I certainly will not predict um, how this election will come out. Um, I see the polls, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I did a column um, last week on the UAE-Israel-Trump sort of deal here, Trump-Kushner deal. And um, I was very positive about it. And, and positive about the president's role. I just call him as I see him. I think this was a good thing. And he did a good job in navigating this, whether he knew what he was doing or not knew what he was doing, whatever, he, he did a good job. And I called it as I saw it. Um, and I was struck afterwards, the number of uh, Republican friends of mine, who, you know, I think have been uncomfortable with Trump. I mean, he's just done so much crazy stuff lately. You know. Guys, you'd think that, you know what, I bet this time they won't, they won't vote for him, you know. I was struck at how many of them wrote me and said, that was the best column. Oh, that, that may have been the best column you've ever written. And I know what was actually going on there. My column, because it basically said, hey, Trump did something good and right, you know. Yeah. Gave them permission. It's the kind of thing they threw in the face of their kids. Their kids are probably saying, dad. You're not really going to vote for that guy, um, or maybe their wife, or maybe their neighbor, or maybe their employee. And out comes a column in the New York Times, not on Fox News, 
and I'm just doing my job, you know? And I was struck by the, how quickly they picked up on it. Almost to say, see, my guy's not the jerk you think he is, you know? Yeah. In yeah. other words, he's still my guy. So be very, very careful about these polls, you know? Um, I, I think that um, uh, there's just a lot of, um, the, the, he has a lot of residual support. And um, uh, don't, don't fool yourself. No, I don't trust anything until it actually happens, until it actually happens. Um, now that we were overseas in the Mideast, we may come, I want to come back to that, but I, I really want to talk about China. Um, you know, we've entered a new Cold War, uh, this time with China. Uh, I think a lot of people feel sort of crept up on us, uh, that it has been, you know, brewing for years, but Australians are really dismayed by and surprised by the harshness of the interplay uh, between Australia and China and the consequences of what it means for trade and growth. Um, but it's been building for years in the South China Sea, in the digital ecosystems in China. Um, we have uh, brinksmanship. Uh, Hong Kong has been uh, completely dominated. Uh, I mean, is Taiwan next? And does that mean war? Uh, we have a president who's taken China on frontally on structural issues, which you pointed out, very important uh, agenda on the China's, what they've done on trade and intellectual property and so forth and uh, what's underneath those. And, uh, and Trump also launched the most severe trade war since the 1930s. I mean, Trump spurned the TPP, which as you've written was the smartest move against China economically and competitively that could have been devised and he pulled the rug out from it completely. Um, he's gone, Trump has gone beyond blaming China for the virus, is now seeking punitive measures across the board, you know, from tariffs to TikTok. Um, in the first Cold War, you know, with the Soviet Union, there was an iron curtain that descended over Europe and uh, with two competing political and economic systems and the tools were tanks and missiles. And I just wonder in this Cold War, do we have a silicon curtain that's descending across Asia with two competing uh, economic and technological platforms and systems from 5G to social media with the tools being your platforms, your cyber, your cyber attacks and your apps? And um, how are you reading this? Do we have, what, how do you see this new Cold War going in the Silicon Curtain and what it means for two worlds, two systems, two futures? Well, it is my view, um, which I really got from one of my best American Chinese businessmen sources in, in, in Beijing, that Donald Trump is not the American president that Americans deserve but he sure is the American president that China deserved. Um, and uh, uh, and I, it's another issue where I have supported the president um, because somebody had the call to game and, the, and no American president really had. And the game was really out of whack. China today, Bruce, is so much more open than it was 40 years ago and so much more closed than it was six years ago. All right, there's been a real reversal there. And as you said, much more aggressive posture in the South China Sea, just openly crushing democracy in Hong Kong, um, concentration camps of some order in, against the Uyghurs in, um, in Western China, and a, and a country that basically has evicted every American journalist except for a tiny handful. We have one reporter there, you know, from the New York Times. Yeah. So um, uh, somebody had to call the game. Now, my view on how to deal with China is very simple. And the Chinese, American, or Western Cold War. The Cold War with the Soviet Union was fought and won in Berlin. And my view is that the Cold War with China will be fought and won in Berlin. What do I mean by that? Okay. Um, uh, so, so my view is that um, Trump's huge. Trump got everything right about China, except how to deal with it, okay? So um, the, the, the way to um, deal with China, in my view, is you cannot make it Trump versus Xi over who has the biggest tariff. Because when you do that, you trigger all this Chinese nationalism behind President Xi. You always have to frame it as the world versus China on what are the right universal principles on human rights, on trade, on technology and commerce. 
when it's the world against China, which is what they hate, which is why they practice divide and rule foreign policy, then they have a real problem. And then it's not so clear that it's the people of China. Which, in fact, often then it's the reformers in China against Xi. So what was the right approach in my view? The right approach was to sign TP, excuse me, to sign TPP, get 40% of global GDP on your side. The TPP agreement was the most modern trade agreement in the world. It was very much in America's interest. It was designed around you know, intellectual property rules, everything had the 12 most prosperous nature, nations around the Pacific gathered together on the most modern trade rules. China was not a member, had real weight to it. You sign TPP, then you go to where? You go to Berlin, you go to the Germans. People forget because Germany's a quiet country. Germany is a really powerful, rich country today. And it is the other great manufacturing power in the world. We make Boeings and we make, you know, Amazon and, and, and we make chips, you know. Germany, like China, is the other country in the world that makes everything, okay. The EU is Germany and Germany is the EU. You go to Berlin and then you get the whole EU on your side, the world's largest single market. Then you call up Xi and you say, Mr. Xi, let's meet in Hainan Island. We do it all in secret, all in secret. We're gonna save everybody's face. No one's gonna be embarrassed. But in private, I'm gonna show up with my TPP partners on my left and the entire European Union on my right. And in private, we are gonna nail you. We are gonna absolutely nail you. Because I got 80% of global GDP on my side. You do, negotiating with China without leverage is like playing baseball without a bat, okay? Or cricket without a bat. Your hand starts to hurt after a while. If you are going, they understand power and they know how to measure your power to the last gram from a hundred paces. And so to me, which technological superpower, Beijing or Washington has Berlin on their side is the one that's gonna win this trade war. And unfortunately, Pew just came out with a study that said that basically 50% of Germans um, have, I forgot the exact phrasing of it, but have more respect for or sympathy with China as they do with the United States, which is a terrible, terrible indictment of this administration. Exactly. And, um, uh, to me, Australia alone, you don't stand a chance. Sorry, guys, you, you don't stand a chance. You need to be part of a wider alliance. And frankly, we don't stand a chance. This is a country of 1.3 billion people. It will have the world's biggest middle class. So it is essential that you know, we, we find a way to do this. Because I'm not for decoupling. Um, we, we, first of all, China's gonna have a huge market. If you're an Australian company and you're not there, you're gonna have a problem. Um, if, Korean, if your Korean competitor is there, if your Japanese competitor is there. Um, and I don't want, I have many friends in China. I, I don't think the Chinese people, I, there's no natural war between the US and China. What, what, it's not like they wanna occupy Chinatown in San Francisco, you know what I mean? Make us all you know, eat wonton soup. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no war here. There's no ideological, they're, they're capitalists like we are. I don't even know what we're fighting about exactly, you know? Um, except that, you know, they might steal our stuff. I'm not for that. You know, they might listen or watch my friend's kid's TikTok video. I, I don't know what they're going to get from that, you know. Um, but uh, but I, I understand, you know, this is big geopolitical, you know, whatnot. But, um, but we need to understand some of this was inevitable, Bruce, for this reason. For you know, 30 of the last 40 years of China's real integration into the world economy, China sold us what I call shallow goods. Goods we wore on our back, goods, shoes we wore on our feet, toys we played with our kids, and solar panels we put on our roof. They sold us shallow goods. We sold them deep goods, software, chips, uh, you know, uh, really intelligent devices, things that went into their homes and their in their businesses and, and, and their um, uh, manufacturing, stuff that went deep into their society. What's changed, what's new, is they can now sell us deep goods. That's what the Huawei story is all about. 
And unfortunately, Australia and China and America and China and Europe and China do not have the trust framework for us to buy their deep goods. When they were just selling me toys, t-shirts, and tennis shoes, I didn't care whether they were authoritarian, libertarian, or vegetarian. But when they are going to sell me Huawei 5G that goes in my bedroom, then suddenly the fact that we do not share the same values really matters. Because this is not your grandfather's Cold War. The Cold War with the Soviet Union was a Cold War with a country that made vodka, caviar, and nesting dolls. That was it, okay? That was all they made. And, and we didn't need any of it. When you're in a Cold War with China, everything from the number of Chinese students at your university, and therefore the budget at your university, to the number of Chinese students at Montgomery College, junior college, down the street here from my house in Bethesda, it, it, it affects everything. And so I think we are doomed to find a way out of this. But I think she has overplayed his hand, I think really badly. And I think we, America, have badly underperformed. And that's also part, part of this. You know, I always remind people, Bruce, and I'll end here. It takes 19 hours and 25 minutes to take the bullet train called Amtrak from New York. <laughs> It takes four hours and 25 minutes to take the bullet train from Beijing to Shanghai and Beijing to Shanghai is farther. Yeah. So um, we've underperformed. Um, the, this is a serious country and, um, and we are not a serious country right now. We are 4% of the world's population and we have 25% of the world's coronavirus cases. Shame on us. That's not a serious country. We ended up with, we started with Mother Nature, but Simon, over to you and some questions for the balance of the hour. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. That's fa fascinating. Um, and indeed, some of the questions are going to pick up directly on this, I'm sure. Um, we're going to do something a little different. Um, we're going to bring on some questioners live, as it were. Um, and first up uh, is um, one of our academics here from the centre, uh, Garana Grigic. Garana, are you with us? Can we... Flip to Garana, please. There's Garana coming on now. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Um, and thank you, uh, Tom, for the great talk and Bruce for moderating it. Um, I have a question about how we got here in terms of um, the age of the candidates and actually the makeup of the US political um, class and, and uh, its leaders at the moment. So um, we know that the president uh, has uh, just turned 74, his opponent is 77, the Speaker of the House is 80, the Senate Majority Leader is 78, uh, and we have one of the oldest con Congresses actually in US history. Um, how did we end up here or how did the US end up here? And is this the last election where we will be seeing uh, the kind of older guard uh, um, spiring it out as it, as it were? Um, interesting question. Uh, what kind of name is Garana? If I can ask? <laughs> like the fruit, um, it's Croatian. Oh, interesting, interesting, great. Um, uh, so, you know, part of it's kind of a freak just had the youngest president in Barack Obama. You know, we just went from the youngest and most diverse, you know, to two guys who, you know, they could have a very interesting discussion of who could remember what they had for breakfast in this debate. You know what I mean? So, um, uh, I, so I, don't know, I, I don't know that it's a pattern yet. It may just have been a solar lunar eclipse of how this played out, because there were a lot, of, a lot of young people in the, um, uh, uh, in the democratic field as well. We had, we, had, we had the first openly gay mayor, for instance, a young person. Um, you know, I can, let me sort of take each side of it. So let's talk about Joe Biden. How did Joe Biden emerge from that group? And um, uh, if the pandemic were not uh, forcing me to stay home and I could travel right now, I'll tell you where I would go first. I'd go to South Carolina I'd go to uh, a black church. I'd show up on Sunday morning 
and say, I just want to go up and talk to the choir. And I'd sit down uh, with the choir, African-American women, and I'd ask them one question. You guys, you were the ones who lifted Joe Biden off the, off the mat. Revived his career, saved him. He he was going down. What was on your mind? And I think what was on their mind. Um, now I'm just projecting, but I think what was on their mind is Americans really. Let me let me step back for one second, Gore, and say, Joe Biden and Donald Trump both have Teflon. You know what we say, Teflon. You know this this the nonstick stuff. So Trump's Teflon is mud. When you're completely covered in mud. If I throw more mud at you, it doesn't stick because you're already covered in mud. So to talk about a stain on Donald Trump is like an oxymoron. You know I mean, it's impossible to stain him. He's covered in mud. Joe Biden's Teflon actually is that he's, he is and he's perceived as a really decent guy, a, a, a basically a good person. And so that's why all of Trump's attacks actually don't stick to him. And I think what brought him off the mat, what propelled him, what, what was the wisdom of those African-American voters in South Carolina, was that they actually understood something. I wrote about it last week. Our country is on the verge of a civil war. We are as tribalized as Sunnis and Shiites. We call them Democrats and Republicans, but our politics has become utterly tribalized. And there is a deep fear in the country that we are coming apart, that we are on the verge of a civil war, and they reach for the guy, and it probably had to be an older white guy for the moment, who they thought could pull us back together. And the ticket of Biden and Kamala Harris actually captures what I was talking about earlier. You actually see the transition in the country from a white majority, male-dominated, to a much more minority-majority with a, a much greater role, role played by women and minorities. So that's the sort of solar lunar eclipse that brought the elderly Biden you know, back. Trump you know, came from a very different, um, uh, uh, but also very one in a million kind of thing. Um, you know, he, he ran against a very weak field. Um, he was a reality TV star and um, he was able to break through by touching on this sort of deep white angst, whatever. So I would tell you, I wouldn't judge this election um, as somehow a trend where only 75 year olds can run the country. Uh, I think it's more of a kind of solar lunar eclipse as I say, um, I hope so at least, um, uh, but we'll have to talk in four years from now. Thank you. Thanks, and, and I should point out, um, Gran had just got back from, um from election watching back in uh, Croatia or Serbia? Where were you, Garana? It was Croatia. Let's... Yeah, and, and is finishing up her two weeks of quarantine in a, in a hotel. Um, okay. um, but we're delighted to have uh, Garana on the call. And now, uh, Carol Schwartz from the Trawala Group uh, in Melbourne. Carol, uh, over to you. Thanks so much, Simon. And thank you, Tom. I think the last time I met you actually was uh, at a Sydney Institute dinner a number of years ago where you gave a, a fantastic presentation. Um, and thank you for all your columns and your brilliant writing in the New York Times. Really, really enjoy it. And it's the first thing I read every morning. Um, Tom, you say that the US does not share values with China. How would you describe US values under Trump? And if Trump is re-elected, what does that actually say about U.S. values? It's a good and a legitimate question, you know. Um, and I worry about your, your question. I ask it myself because if you elect him once, well, we could say that was a mistake. Uh, if you elect him, re-elect him, that's not a mistake anymore. That's about who you are or who you've become. Mm -hmm. and that's why I think this election is just... You know, it's a cliche, the most important election in your lifetime. No, no, this actually is the most important election. Um, and so, um, you know, Trump emerged from, uh, I mean, I, I think we'll, we'll be studying this for a long time, you know, exactly where he emerged from. Um, but it was, a, it was a, just such a combination of things of, of again, that 
a country going from majority uh, majority um, uh, to minority majority led um, and the uh, fear and anxiety and racism that that, that triggers, you know, that was one. Um, a country going um, uh, from uh, where you worked with your hands and work with your hands was well compensated for to a country where um, you work with your mind and you don't go from school and then to work, but you have to work, learn, work, learn, work, learn, work, learn for your whole life and the stress and anxiety that produces. Um, and so we're in the middle of all these really giant transitions. Um, and the way I like to describe it is, um, uh, and I probably talked about this when I was in Australia, you know, we're, we're in this age of accelerating change. And um, I ended my last book, Thank You for Being Late, with a, a song from one of my favorite singers, Brandy Carlisle, and her song is called The I, E-Y-E, E-Y-E. And um, the main refrain is, I wrapped my love around you like a chain, but I never was afraid that it would die. You can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. So I think that all of these accelerating changes in globalization, climate, work, school, um, they're like a hurricane. And they're basically two kind of leaders in the world today. Those who say, want to build a wall against the hurricane, and those who want to build an eye an eye that moves with the storm, draws energy from it, but creates a platform of dynamic stability, not frozen stability, but dynamic stability. Um, I call that the healthy community, a little about what I was talking about in Wilmer, where people can feel connected, protected, and respected. Connected, protected, and respected. And I think the great struggle in Australia, Australian politics, and in American politics, is between the wall people and the eye people. And, and Donald Trump was the, the crudest form of, of the wall people. And, um, but it's because so many people are caught in multiple layers of change and they just want someone to please turn the wind down. And, and that's a big part of it. Thank thanks, you. Tom. thanks, Tom. Thanks, Carol. Um, I'd like now to turn uh, to the chairman of the board of the United States Study Center, Mark Bailey. Mark, um, over to you for a question for Tom. I think we're bringing you up onto the call now. Thanks, Simon. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Tom, uh, thank you on, on behalf of the board of the US Study Center, uh, the uh, chair. I uh, want to really thank you for your participation in today's event. Um, I uh, read with interest your books uh, back uh, the two, uh, The World is Flat and uh, Hot, Flat and Crowded. Uh, they now date back to 2005 and 2008, I think. Um, and I was really interested in the uh, themes that you developed there. You didn't shy away from some of the challenges that were confronting uh, the world at that point in time, but you took a, a, what I would call a determinedly optimistic view about how they could be you know, addressed and dealt with. So my question to you is, um, given the affliction of now 15 years since you wrote those books, would you change um, any of the, uh, if you were to sit down and write them today, would you change the titles or would you change the, some of the themes? And is the Dell theory of conflict prevention still applicable in the world we find ourselves in today? Well, we're going to find out, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to find out. Um, no, you know, um, when the world is flat came out, um, uh, I mean, ever since then, there's the whole library of books, the world is not flat, the world is spiky, the world is lumpy, the world is crooked. Um, that book captured something. Um, uh, the world's flatter than ever today, okay? Look at what we're doing right now, okay? I'm sitting in my in my office and you're in Australia and we're answering multiple questions and you guys are in multiple places. Okay. Uh, whenever people say, you know, the world, boy, this pandemic ended globalization. Really? I say, well, I just did a webinar with uh, India in the morning, the UN in the afternoon and China in the evening, you know, so, so these trends, you know, they, they aren't going away. You know, I think that in time, um, uh, if I may just say this about my own work, my, my book that will actually, um, stand out most will be the Lexus and the Olive Tree. Uh, and I will tell you why. Um, at the end of the Cold War, 
there was a, back in the, you know, 1989, there was a big question out there. What is the, what is the system that will replace the Cold War system? That's what we were all asking. And a bunch of us took a stab at over the next sort of decade or half decade of making an argument of what is the system that will replace the Cold War system? Now, the first and most famous was Frank Fukuyama. He said, it'll be the end of history. It'll be the triumph of free markets and, and free um, political systems. Well, at best, and I'm a big fan of Frank's, but he was a little premature, let's say at best. And at worst, he was just flat wrong. Uh, the second big book came out was by another friend of mine, Sam Huntington. And Sam said, no, 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 it's actually gonna be a clash of civilizations. Well, actually there's been more clash within civilizations. I mean, Vietnam and China, Shiites and Sunnis. I mean, uh, you know, yes, but not really. That's not the new system, clashing civilizations. Uh, third was Robert Kaplan. He said it's gonna be the coming anarchy, anarchy everywhere. Well, we got anarchy in some places, but actually, you know, not in most others. The fourth was, was uh, the Lexus and the Olive Tree. And I basically argued that what will replace the Cold War system will be an interaction between what is really old, uh, the unleashing of what is really old, what I called our olive tree urges, our quest for um, uh, tribe, faith, sect, nation, um, our attachment to these linguistic units. Because the Cold War suppressed a lot of those, so it'll be the, um, the, 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 the emergence of, of so many of these stifled quests for belonging around sect, nation, tribe, faith, etc., interacting with what is really new, this flattening world and globalization system. Now, sometimes our olive tree urges will burst through that globalization system. That goes to your Dell theory question. Yeah. Um, uh, Putin will actually seize Crimea, but he won't go to Kiev. Why? because global economic sanctions, that, that globalization system is really deterring him. So the ultimate test of my theory is the Straits of Taiwan. Is China ready to literally blow up the globalization system uh, to uh, satisfy its olive tree urges? And, um, or is it not? Um, and I don't know, but that is the test. But I still believe it's the interaction between the two what is really new and what is really old, um, that is actually the system that replaced the Cold War system. And that's what Lexus Neology was about. Um, that's, that's a remarkable place to get us to the top of the hour. And I think also um, a, just a fantastic question and fantastic sort of place to, to take us to. Um, we have so many questions that we didn't get to that are um, not quite at that grand strategy level, but about is, will Biden support the TPP and uh, is American multiculturalism at, and all, and we could have gone easily for another hour at least, uh, uh, Tom, as well, you know. And, um, but I thought I'd hand back to Bruce briefly for, some, for a quick closing remark. Uh, just a heartfelt thanks from us, Tom. And whenever you can come back to Australia, we love it and uh, we'll visit again and uh, on the other side of November 3rd. But I really want to close with uh, some work that your wife is doing, uh, Planet Word. Um, and just an update from you, if we might, this is a museum that's dedicated to words and language. It's going to open in Washington, D.C. later this year. And, and in a letter to everyone, she said, Anne wrote, the nation was built on words, the need in these times for a renewal of civil discourse. How about that? And Planet Word will be a forum for that civil discourse. So uh, we wish the museum its our, our best and, and, and all success. And uh, we look forward to visiting there in person too. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, PlanetWordMuseum.org, you can look it up. Uh, uh, it's gonna be the world's first word language museum to promote reading, literacy, uh, and community here in Washington, DC. It's, it's absolutely awesome. We open October 22nd, obviously limited because of the pandemic, but um, when you get to Washington, come look us up. It'll be open then and uh, you'll really enjoy it. I certainly will. And we look forward to many, many more of your words in the uh, years, <laughs> years ahead. Thank you for everything, Tom. Have a great night. We'll Good see night, you again Jim. soon. We enjoyed it. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And real quickly, next week, the team are putting up a teaser for next week. Uh, it's a conversation with Molly Ball, uh, author of the book Pelosi, 
and national political correspondent for Time magazine. And that'll be in conversation with two of our uh, non-resident fellows, uh, Charles Adele and John Lee. And I can also tease, uh, we haven't quite put this one out for marketing yet, but uh, Ambassador John Bolton, um, that's coming up. So keep an eye on your email from us for that special event. Uh, that one's coming up as well. But again, thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Tom. And thank you to the hundreds of people who, who joined us today. Uh, thank you. And, and see you again on another webinar soon. Bye for thank now. Thank you.